Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On April 25, 2014, a crowd gathered at Su Teatro Cultural and Performing Arts Center for the Big Read Closing Party, a.k.a. Vagabond Happy Hour. This free event was part minstrel show, part mini lecture, part art show, part reading, and part shindig. Lighthouse Writers Workshop and its collaborators spent the previous few months being inspired by Housekeeping, the nuanced and beautiful novel by Marilyn Robinson. At the closing party, we celebrated and honored the winners of the Big Read Photo and Writing Contests. Guests also enjoyed the creative work inspired by Housekeeping, which included films, poems, stories, paintings, sculpture, and more. I'm Patricia Calhoun, the editor of Westward, and I have to say it's so great to be here now because the last time I was on this stage, I was moderating a debate between Tom Tancredo and Gustavo Ariano, the author of Ask a Mexican, and there were 10 armed sheriff's deputies in the room, and you guys all look so much nicer. Anyway, it is my honor to welcome you to a night of what is definitely going to be really big fun, the Vagabond Happy Hour. The Big Read replaced what had been one book, one Denver, which we won't talk about right now. Um, And Lighthouse Writers Workshop took up the torch to push for this great National Endowment for the Arts program, which is designed to revitalize the role of literature in American culture and to encourage citizens to read just for pleasure and enlightenment. Since it was founded in 1997, Lighthouse has done a lot to enlighten Denver. It's become one of the leading literary centers in the country, supporting the literary arts by providing high-quality writing workshops and thought-provoking lectures. Currently, thousands of writers from around the country are involved with Lighthouse, and as you can see, dozens of very, very creative people in Denver who are in this crowd tonight. So when Lighthouse took on the Big Read, it's no surprise that it packed so much into the program devoted to Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping that the Big Read grew really, really big, four times as long as it usually is with the NEA. And we see the result tonight of all this great creativity. Big Read participants were given the opportunity to deepen their experience of reading Robinson's novel and of the Colorado arts landscape in general. Thanks to Lighthouse, a Big Read participant was able to attend free craft talks related to housekeeping, join in book discussions all over the city, create paintings, sculpture, and photographs inspired by favorite sections of the book that you saw tonight, and broaden their perspective of what it means to cross over community boundaries through the power of collaboration. Some of the organizations collaborating on this really, really big read include the Colorado Railroad Museum, Stories on Stage, Book Bar, History Colorado, Vintage Theater, Wonderbound, the Center for Digital Storytelling, the Denver Film Society, the Denver Museum, the Art Student League of Denver, and many others, and I apologize if I missed any. Thanks to all of these creative efforts connected with the big read, we were able to connect with our city and to literature in new and very vibrant ways and ways you probably would never imagine till you see him on stage tonight. So welcome to the Vagabond Happy Hour, and have a great time. Um, if the winners tonight are not wearing cowboy boots like Patty and I are, that's okay. You didn't have to wear them. Um, I'm Meg Nix, and I'm the youth program director at Lighthouse, and I think it's so cool that people are here about a book, 
I think a lot of us had our roots in writing very early, and this is a dream come true to like just come out on a Friday night about a book that all these people have read. Um, so in the Young Writers Program at Lighthouse, we had writers from 5th through 12th grade reading Housekeeping, which is pretty impressive. Um, it's a tough book. It's tough for me to read. And there were 6th graders saying, oh, I love it. I'm going to read it again. They had annotated it. Like, crazy. Um, but uh, I'm excited to introduce the the winners of the Young Writers Contest. So the prompt was to write about isolation, um, which is obviously a central theme in housekeeping. Um, and as you can imagine, we had some dark entries. Um, but most of them were really redemptive in the two tonight. Um, you'll see, they, they are just excellent writers. Um, I'd like all of the, the winning young writers to stand. Um, we're just going to have two readers tonight. Um, but they are... Leah Johnson, Claire Trainer, Ayana Spear, and Natalie Parkhurst. Um, I wanted to thank Victoria Hanley, who is the judge for this contest. She's a young adult writer who teaches at Lighthouse. Um, and our first reader is Ayana Spear, who's an eighth grader at Compass Montessori. And Victoria had this to say about her poem. Alive is a perfectly real poem. All the words landed just where they needed to land in my heart. Ayana. You asked me to prove to you that I am alive. But how can I prove to you the impossible? Many people would try to do so. They might say that their heart is beating. They might say something about how their blood flows through their veins or how they can feel pain. But really, does this prove anything? You ask me to prove to you that I am alive, but I am afraid that I am unable to do so. My heart does beat, blood flows through my veins, and I do feel pain. I have thousands upon thousands of thoughts every day, but I am unable to prove to you that I am alive. You ask me to prove to you that I am alive, but I am unable to do so. Everything around me, including you or myself, we could all be figments of imagination. Or maybe this world, this beautiful, terrible world, is simply a dream. I fear oblivion, but really, don't we all? But you all, everyone in this world, forget about this fear. Because you all, everyone, thinks that oblivion is inevitable, and you figure that it is unnecessary to fear the inevitable. Death is another thing someone might use to prove to you that they are alive. But what if death is just another imaginary construct, another thing I or anyone else could have dreamt? And we all, everyone, might already be dead in a never-ending loop of nothing. You asked me to prove to you that I am alive, but I am unable to do so. The world is vast, the universe unimaginably so, and I am unable to prove that I am alive. Thanks, Ayanna. Um, the high school winner is Leah Johnson, who is a junior at George Washington High School. And Victoria had this to say about her piece. The dog, which is the name of her fiction piece, is still right there in my mind. I want to read more, much more, from this person who can write with such depth and flair. The dog was hard-bitten and mangy and old. 
His brown hide was patched with white and stitched over with scars. His ribs stood out in ridges under his skin. His left ear stood straight up, but his right ear bent down as if it had been broken. Henry saw him from the edge of the orchard and stopped and stood still and watched him. The dog sniffed around the base of the dead tree, the one Henry went to whenever he wanted pill bugs. The damp, soft wood was full of them, and when he picked them up, they curled into wheels, but if he was very still, they would uncurl themselves and crawl along his palm on their busy, whiskery legs. If he was very still, they would forget that he was there. The dog was not looking for pill bugs. He circled the tree once, twice, then trotted off down the slope and away from Henry, his head high but his crooked ear limp and his tail not wagging at all. Henry almost ran after him, but instead he sat down on the cold, dewy grass not far from the dead tree and hugged his knees. Cold soaked the seat of his pants, but he didn't care. He clenched his hands tight around each other so they wouldn't imagine feeling wiry fur and hard muscle and warm skin, and kept his eyes open because when he closed them he saw the dog sitting next to him like a friend. Not this dog. This dog was hard-bitten and mangy and old. He dumped his jar out on the grass and sifted through the dirt with his fingers. The worms were all dead. You couldn't keep worms more than a week before you had to let them go. But Thursday the orchard had flooded and they would have drowned, so he had kept them and promised them he would let them go. But they had died. The dirt was loose at the base of the tree and he scratched a hole in it. The gritty mud under his fingernails felt good and he let his hands lie in the hole for a minute before he laid the worms there. A shallow sheen of water was rising up from the earth around the hole, and the worms looked strange lying straight like that at the bottom of the puddle, like ghostly reflections of fingers. He stirred them with his hand to tangle them up and sprinkled them with dirt until they were worms again. After school that day, he snuck out into the orchard again, with the jar cleaned and ready under his arm. The dog was not there. He found a centipede under a rock, but he just looked at it and left it where it was. He walked around the dead tree once and stopped. The dog had left a footprint in the mud, four toes and four sharp pricks of claws and a pad in the middle in the shape of a heart. The ridges in the print were drying out, but the hollows were dark with water. He ran inside, leaving the jar lying where he'd dropped it. He was allowed to take graham crackers from the box in the cupboard, and he grabbed three and left the box open on the counter. He broke one in half and ate it slowly as he walked, leaving a trail of crumbs for the birds to follow and eat. He left the rest at the base of the dead tree, where the dog had been sniffing before. Grandma called him back in. Henry, she said, holding the screen door to the kitchen open for him to come through. What have I told you about leaving the box open? Not with your dirty hands. She grabbed him on his way to close the box and pulled him toward the sink by his wrists. You've been out in the orchard again, haven't you? Look at me when I'm talking to you. He tore his eyes away from the door behind her and glanced at her face, which was so covered in anger and oldness and worry that he bit his lip and looked at the floor. The next morning, he woke when it was still dark and pulled on Dad's old anorak. It was scratchy, and the sleeves were too long, and it no longer smelled like Dad, but it was warm, and the mist outside was cold. He tiptoed out to the orchard and picked up his jar from the damp, dirty grass where he had left it. The cheesecloth cover was soaked through, but it didn't matter. He rolled up the two long sleeves of the anorak and knelt down in the dirt by the dead tree. He wanted beetles. You could keep beetles for days if you gave them enough dead leaves. Shiny black beetles with backs as hard as buttons. He looked up, and the dog was there, close enough to touch, close enough to smell that he smelled stony and cold like water. His black eyes were like beetles' backs, and his broken ear hung flapping and limp like an empty sleeve. 
Henry hugged himself tight with his arms in Dad's anorak, and suddenly he didn't want Beatles anymore. I am Nick Arvin, um, and I was asked to speak tonight because uh, I took a couple of classes with Marilyn Robinson uh, when I was a, a student in the MFA program at the um, Iowa Writers' Workshop. Um, so uh, I wrote this down because I'm a writer. Um, it's seven pages. It's not long. It's seven pages. The last page just says thank you, so it's really just six pages. (laughs) Fifteen years ago, when I arrived at the Iowa Writers Workshop, I was underprepared for classes with Marilyn Robinson. I had studied engineering in college, and my background in literature was thin. I had not read Faulkner or Joyce or Melville or any number of the other canonical writers. I had not read Housekeeping either although I did read it while I was at Iowa. It has to be said that Marilyn Robinson's reputation at that time was not what it is now. She had published only one book of fiction, which was Housekeeping, and it had come out 20 years earlier, in 1980. It had been well-received, and it was the sort of book that writers recommend to other writers, but it was slowly being forgotten, as many good books are. According to rumor, Marilyn had been struggling with her second novel for many years with no end in sight. It seemed at that time that she might be one of those novelists who never published a second novel. Later, she would publish Gilead, which caused a great stir, and then Home, which won the Pulitzer, and then people began to rediscover housekeeping. But that did not happen until years after I had left Iowa. Iowa is a two-year program, And during my first year there, Marilyn did not teach at all. She had been awarded a fellowship that gave her a big pile of money every year for five years so that all she needed to do was write. She was not expected to teach my second year either. But then, surprising everyone, she turned down the remainder of her grant. She said she missed teaching. I took a seminar on Faulkner that Marilyn taught, and then I took a writing workshop. I was, as I said, underprepared. I remember one day in the seminar, Marilyn began talking about the great modernist writers. She talked about Joyce and how if you looked closely at him and his writing, he wasn't really a modernist. And then Faulkner, well, if you really looked at his writing too, he wasn't really a modernist either. And then Proust, well, she explained how he wasn't really a modernist. And so she said, with her little laugh, You see, none of the modernists were actually modernists. She had this little laugh when she amused herself with some intellectual joke. She was a pretty solemn person, but that laugh was almost a giggle. And afterward, a friend said to me, that was amazing, fascinating. And I, the engineer, said, yes, it certainly was. (laughs) And then I ran home and I looked up, what is modernism? (laughs) Because I really had no idea. In her first uh, workshop class, she said something like, you know, everyone's sitting around a table. She's sitting at the head of the table. She says, well, what did you all think of this? And that meant that we should all start talking about the short story that was up for workshop. 
her mode was to let us all talk about that story for as long as we wanted until we had said whatever we wanted to say. And then when we had wound down, she would begin telling us what she thought. As the weeks went by, well, what did you all think of this began to shrink. She would start by saying, well, and she had this little flutter with her hands, well, and that meant we were all supposed to start talking about the story. And by the end of the semester, she only fluttered her hand and looked at us. And that was our signal to start talking. Um, Sometimes, though, before she fluttered her hand, she would make a little small talk in her peculiar way. One day she sat down and said hello, and then said she had been doing a little research into mad cow disease. She talked for a long time. And as she talked about prions and vectors, it became apparent that she had done an enormous amount of research into mad cow disease. And what she had found was completely and utterly terrifying in ways that she explained in great detail. And I literally did not eat any beef for years after that. (laughs) I wish that I could take her classes again now that I am older and wiser, or if not wiser, then at least a little bit less ignorant. At the time, what she said sometimes struck me as quite brilliant, and sometimes it seemed entirely beside the point. And sometimes it seemed possible that what she was saying was quite brilliant, if only I could make heads or tails out of it. I kept a few notes from the class, which I pulled out and looked over as I was preparing for this talk. And I found that one of the things she said on the first day of class was that she did not plan to teach technique that she believed great writers overstepped technique. The idea of overstepping technique is lovely in the abstract, but it's hard to know what to do with it in the particular. And the truth is that I was an engineer, and what I really wanted to know was technique. (laughs) How do you build a story? What are the pieces and parts? How do you fit them together? How could I overstep all of that? I don't think that I could overstep it, but maybe she could. Let me give you an example. I remember one time she was talking about how a writer had to be careful about the slipperiness of the meaning of certain words. And somehow she went from there to talking about the meaning of meaning. What is the meaning of meaning? And that's a question that I found myself returning to in recent years, the meaning of meaning. It's a a foundational question when you really start thinking about it for, for a writer. You ask a writer what they want to write, And they very often tell you something like, they want to write something meaningful. But what does that mean? At the time, however, when she said the meaning of meaning and was talking about the meaning of meaning, I just thought, you've got to be kidding me. I just wanted to know, what are the advantages and disadvantages of using the first person? Stuff like that. And yet, at other times, she would say something like this, which I pulled up from my notes. A complex sentence suspends disparate concepts against one another like a mobile. Another thing she said was, always keep something before the reader that they can see. Seeing is the great thread that keeps a reader in fiction. And she said, life is determined significantly by the things that don't happen, by its negative space. And even the engineer could see the value in those ideas. The engineer even wrote them down. Another thing she said was that literature is to some extent a bizarre celebration of the fact that the earth is full of people and stuff. A few years ago, Marilyn published an essay titled, You Need Not Doubt What I Say Because It Is Not True. Let me repeat that. You need not doubt what I say because it is not true. 
She explains in the essay that this idea that you need not doubt what I say because it is not true comes from a phrase that the chorus used to sing before a play in ancient Greece. The basic idea is that the great power of fiction lies in that the, the audience already knows it's all made up. It's not true. And knowing that it's not factual allows the reader to skip right past questions of factuality and go right directly into the big questions about the nature of life, about what makes us human, about love and death and good and evil. Looking back, what I think Marilyn was teaching was the peculiar combination of those two ideas, that on the one hand, fiction is both a celebration of the fact that Earth is full of people and stuff, while on the other hand, fiction allows us to transcend factuality. It's a paradox, and we see it illustrated exquisitely in Housekeeping, a book that is grounded beautifully in descriptions of the town, of the house, of water, and of the characters, while at the same time, somehow because of those descriptions and through those descriptions, it is a book that transcends into questions about the nature of community, of family, of how to know who you are and how to be who you are. Great writers overstep technique, she said, and maybe that's essentially true, because what technique is there for transcending a paradox? Maybe the only way is to show by example, by writing a great book like Housekeeping, and then another, and then another. Thank you. Well, hi. How's everyone doing out there? Good, good. <laughs> uh, my name is Holly McClelland, and I'm with the Center for Digital Storytelling. And um, for 20 years now, we've been helping people tell their stories, their first-person narratives, um, true, true stories. Um, we hold workshops at Lighthouse, and we've we collaborated with uh, the Big Read to tell stories about home and um, what home means to you. And um, we did one-day workshops, and we held three of them. And so I'm going to show, or that guy up there is going to show three stories. They're about two minutes long. So. Where am I from? I'm from the intersection of book characters and family characters. It's not like everything happens at the same time. Still, the chaos is what struck others. Jane, your house was the most exciting place I could go ever. Pam said, I remember every wall, every picture on every wall, the sepia of your grandparents, the picture of Jesus whose eyes followed us everywhere. And my mom wore up. With nine, you would, no matter how much you love them. And every scalloped picture shows that, and the picture's in my mind's eye. She needed help, and she came armed with story characters. She'd been an only child, and only children had a lot of time on their hands alone. And she read and she escaped. So when she needed help raising her gang of nine, she called in characters. And I learned I'd be courageous from Johnny Tremaine. And the engine that could taught me I could be anything I wanted to be. And when she died, she'd left us a legacy of thought. It sat on a shelf, but it lived in our actions, where we had internalized honesty and effort and courage and imagined greatness as just a matter of fact what we were supposed to be. She set our compass and aimed the sextant. She pointed us to the stars. 
And these other characters, the ones I grew up with, they took over where she left off because she did die, leaving dad who died too of a broken heart or a heart attack, whatever you want to believe. Since that was never part of her narrative, we didn't know what to do with that part of the story. But these characters, we figured it out, became guides to each other and guardians, and learned how to glue our lives back together, such as they were. And now, we are the guardians of each other's childhood, repository of memories and original directions. We think our parents are follow us everywhere now. There are seven toothbrushes in the cup next to the sink, and only four of us. My cat Helen has claws of the screen in our bedroom, which means a raccoon could enter the house at any moment. Maybe it already has. The open house is in less than two weeks. We painted the trim and donated hefty bags stuffed with damaged Christmas ornaments, stained napkins, and a broken telephone. What did I think? Did I get my telephone fixed someday at the telephone repair shop? There's hair in the drain, and the plastic cooking utensils in my kitchen drawer have gone unused for so long that they've practically fused together. Then there's the yard. It's filled with weeds and sandy ant houses so big that my foot sinks into them when I mow the lawn. But the garage is the worst. When I cleaned it out, I found six bottles of antifreeze. Five bags of de-icing salt, an unused grass seed we bought over a decade ago. I wish I knew how to cock the tile and repair the cracks in the plaster. Sometimes I think all of my problems would be solved if I just knew how to use an electric drill. How can we live like this? I have a mother-in-law who dusts her light bulbs. She vacuums the air. I feel like the world is made up of other people who are better at this than I am. They oil their tools. They label their paint cans. Their lawns are acid green. When their garage doors yawn open, they reveal a kind of frightening order inside. Hooks, baskets, bicycles suspended from the ceiling. Think of all the strangers who will walk through my front door. They won't know there's was a pile on the kitchen counter by the toaster. A hot spot. That's what my friend Susan calls them. She says you should think of piles as if they are hot as lava. Then again, she also says she only allows herself to worry about each of her children for 20 minutes a day. I once met a priest and told me I had a rack in my head. And on it, I kept track of where all the murders in my city had taken place. In my house, I keep track of the messes, the dishes in the kitchen sink, the tailings of my husband's beard on the bathroom mirror, the dust under the radiator. I see us as messmakers, human cyclones. The priest said, what about the places where nobody has been murdered? Selling my house has turned into a photo negative where only the problems are visible. Selling my house makes me grateful I can't find my hammer, or I might smash the whole thing down. 
It can be a giant experience. Come home, call for a visit, and have to call your parents to get directions to the house. I had to do that twice. My parents sold real estate and built custom homes for me. I followed a lot of places home. I looked into places ranging from 1200 square foot condos, where I slept in the closet, which was inside the sounds, to 5700 square foot dream homes, where I had the whole second story myself. I lived on 10 acres, where we had a garden, a pool, a lake, and a bigger car. And I lived in an apartment, where I could hear people above, below, and on both sides of us. A few months ago, my wife and I bought our first house together. It's a house that we picked out and paid for. A house that we planned to be our home for over a decade. It's the 15th house I've lived in. But I spent my life with the mindset of each house being a stepping stone to the next. Now that I own my house, where I'm free to stay as long as I want, I just can't seem to shake the feeling that my presence there is temporary. Shortly after we moved in, our collection of artworks strategically lined the walls, some still waiting for time. It's hard for me to put holes in the walls when I feel like the walls aren't mine. She sees every piece of art as a memory. I see every piece of two holes in the wall. She doesn't understand that this house is temporary and we aren't the final owners. What she does understand is that a house you don't really live in isn't really a home. Good evening. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director at Lighthouse. Um, thank you for coming. Um, it's great to see you here. Um, thank you for all the readers. Um, thank you to all the readers um, who have read, performed, and who will perform. Um, this is pretty good stuff, huh? Don't you think? Amazing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> um, I'm here to announce the... Uh, the winners of the adult contest. But before I do that, um, I have some thank yous that I need to talk about. Um, I'd like to thank all the participants in um, the many months, many, many months of Big Read events. Um, I also want to thank the volunteers, too many people to name, really, um, who helped the Big Read happen. Um, I certainly want to thank all of our collaborators um, that... Um, Patty mentioned earlier. Um, it was really wonderful and inspiring to work with so many um, talented organizations um, and dedicated organizations. Um, it, it's incredibly inspiring to see um, the collection of um, dedicated arts people in, in Denver. Um, they're just awesome. So I also want to thank, um, I need to really give a shout out to the Big Read Planning Committee. Um, and if you guys don't mind, after I call your name, would you stand up and can we give you a big, big round of applause? Um, actually, whoever's on the committee, just stand up, please. Thank you. Um, especially Deanne Gertner, Emily Sinclair, Lori Wagner, and our fearless leader, Nancy Graham. 
who's right there. Um, and Gary Schonbacher, um, and Meg Nix, and Kristen Pozolski, um, and Dan Manzanares. Um, you guys are amazing. Um, I do just have to say thank you especially to Nancy um, for keeping us um, on task, making sure everything got done, mostly on time. Um, and of course, I need to thank our supporters, the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District and the National Endowment for the Arts for their support. Um, without them, um, we'd be in a whole world of hurt. I also want to thank our um, judges for the contests. For photography, that was Mark Sink. Poetry was Matthew Cooperman. Uh, Stephanie Geschwind was a nonfiction judge. And Stephen Schwartz was the fiction um, judge as well. So thank you to them for doing that good work. Uh, Matthew, Stephanie, and Stephen are all editors at Colorado Review, and um, they're wonderful. So if you're, if you're in the mood for buying a literary journal, I highly recommend it, if you just have that strange feeling that you need to go do that. Um, so now to the winners of the contest. Um, I'm just going to name the first, second, and third place winners by genre. And when I'm done, if you could stand up if you're here, and we'll give you a round of applause. How's that sound? Sound pretty good? Um, if, you, if you are a winner, you need to find Deanne to get your award. Um, Deanne's right over there. She's, she's got a pocket full of checks. So for poetry, the third place was Dust in the Big House by Greg Matheny. Second place was Legs by Melinda Miller. First place was Sisters by Colleen Zubik. In nonfiction, third place was Housekeeping by Leah Woodall. Second place, The Hill by Jay Solomon. First place, The Dry Sea by Tessa Cheek. Fiction, Third place, Airstream by Shelley Catterson. Second, Indexical by Carol Sampson. First place, The New Girl by Rose Frederick. In photography, uh, there's a fourth place. Fourth place was Glossy, Dark, and Wet by Barb Chiarella. Third was Cousins by Karen Weeklime. Second was Just Struck Match, Creation the Precursor to Loss by Eric Grossman. And first was Impermanent Destruction, also by Karen Weeklime. And I believe all those photographs are out in the lobby to take a look at. So congratulations to those winners. Stand up. Stand up. (laughs) Don't be shy. Stand up. Thank you. Uh, so we have two readers tonight, and our first up is Tessa Reek, who will be reading the first place nonfiction winner, uh, The Dry Sea. I'm going to read this on my phone. I hope, it, I, hope I don't drop it. <laughs> um, so there will be pictures behind me that just think of them as landscape. They're, don't be distracted. <laughs> so this opens, I prefer a ruin to a monument which is the writer and photographer Eduardo Levy describing himself in autoportrait. By the time you see the hollow walls, you've been driving for five hours on assignment through southern Colorado. The ruin flashes by on the north side of US 50, a mile outside Rocky Ford. Shards of yellow brick, the glassless iron frames of Mediterranean arched windows 30 feet high along the building's southern face. Trees grow up and all around and inside. The light shines through it. Chain link surrounds it. You know you have to turn around. You would have wanted to stop no matter what, 
In this part of the country, the land is flat, and unless it's coated in an electric, irrigated green, the earth is the color of ash. Here, a stand of trees around a shattered castle could only be a dream. You are just 23, but you know that most dreams do not bear up under pressure. You have learned not to touch, not to look too closely, and instead to remember that baited hook with fondness, that flash of something beautiful and strange at the side of the highway you are riding, always 11 miles over the speed limit to some urgent, if uncertain, destination. But this time, you are on assignment. You have an editor who has told you to take pictures of broken, shut-down things. Your editor gives you an example. She's just photographed the old Colorado University Medical School, now abandoned and overgrown. It's been tagged by a gang that calls itself Civilized. The story's to do with the shutdown of the federal government, a kind of making real or bringing home that goes beyond pictures of closed national parks into an entirely independent species of shutdown. In the end, it turns out the two are better linked by the vocabulary of poetry than of journalism. First, you think of Colorado Springs, where you grew up, and where the storefront of an ice cream parlor you used to visit with your father still stands empty. Michelle's. You used to sit across from him in a vinyl booth. The walls were covered in murals featuring girls in petticoats. The Sundays came in tall glasses with long spoons. You always got mint chocolate chip, no nuts. The hot fudge always pooled at the bottom. They got shut down for tax evasion you heard six years ago. You remember the sign on the door the day it closed. You were skipping class with high school friends to buy Jordan almonds. They were like beautiful pastel river stones. The building kept failing to sell at auction. The city covered the dusty windows in a bizarre imperative, dance like no one is looking. Right next door, a brand new candy shop opened up. You take the picture on your way south and say out loud, ridiculous. Back on the highway, heading for Pueblo with the windows all down, you realize you are angry in a heady, free-floating way. The radio is up very loud, but all you hear is wind. You're not angry at the tax collectors or evaders. You're not even angry at the ambitious new candy makers, not even your own father. It's just that you leave these things to resolve themselves, only to find that they deteriorate further, endlessly inscrutable. In La Junta, you take a picture of a shut-down Walmart. A woman in the neighboring thrift shop tells you corporate abandoned the building when they opened a new super Walmart just outside town. I can't for the life of me understand why they didn't just add on, she says while you buy her conversation in the form of an extremely ordinary glass vase for $1 plus 7 cents in sales tax. Not long after, you pull over for an Osed pizza hut in Sea of Tall Grasses. Here, the highway splits to wrap around Rocky Ford, where the population has declined by 10% in as many years, where a cantaloupe-born listeria outbreak, which killed 33 people, is said to have originated in 2011. Eventually, the outbreak was traced to a town 95 miles to the east where they also grow cantaloupes and also put the prized Rocky Ford sticker on the rind. In never, turning, in never legally turning their name into a brand, the true millionaires of Rocky Ford had made a terrible, if unforeseeable, mistake. For a gut-riching season, they seemed indelibly sullied. They harvested just 20% of their usual haul, and they sold it only in Colorado. They begged for a forgiveness that made dollars but little sense. The Listeria story makes you feel tired. You're carrying a full belly of carnitas in your stomach, a gift pumpkin from a cantaloupe farmer in your trunk, and a plan to drive over the continental divide before, before nightfall in your head. And that's when you pass it. The ruin goes by in a flash of unexpected trees, brick, rare arched forms. After 200 yards, you make the U-turn. 
You say to yourself something which a blonde and buoyant yoga teacher said to you earlier in the week, milliseconds before you ditched out on chair pose. This is how you change. I have reached days, the age where I, I think I can remember everything, but then, of course, I can't. I remember there are three more um, members of the um, Big Read Committee. Um, Liz Golden, Laurie Wagner, and... Um, oh, darn, who was the other third person? Who's it? Anybody? Nancy, do you remember? Is there anybody else? Is that it? So let's give them a hand. So sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Got to write these things down, right? Yeah. Um, Next up is the first place poetry winner, Colleen Zubik, who will be reading Sisters. Well, it's great to be in such terrific company tonight. Um, The films, all the other readings have been just wonderful. And I really appreciate the opportunity that Lighthouse and the whole community that follows Lighthouse affords us all. So thanks for that. Appreciate it. I'm a big fan of housekeeping. Poems are short, right? So I'm doing a little preamble. And then we'll get to the poem. Um, I'm a big fan of housekeeping. I've read it three times. And the first time was in college when, in a German literature class, someone handed me the book and said, you've got to read this. This is your life. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm pretty cool. And I read it, and I was kind of horrified. I thought, really? (laughs) Does everybody know I am such a mess? And let's call it, you know? Um, And then I put it away, and a few years later I read it again um, because I thought, maybe I'm going to learn something. And then I read it again many years later and um, because it does what you know, our relationships with books can do for us, which is, um, it just, it was like being seen, like being heard. Um, I, you know what I mean. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> I write poems. I'm not expository. Anyway, so, um, my poem is called Sisters, and, uh, my sister and I did move about every two years, and there's a few words in here, um, names of places, that may not be recognizable. Um, And then there's a word, uh, the word Davenport, which I haven't heard a lot lately, but it means sofa or couch. Um, And I think everything else is self-explanatory. Sisters, before we lost the memory of Harriet without a bourbon in her hand, we lost the blue Chevy and the brown speckled Davenport, then the use for Davenport. We gave up our professed love of iceberg lettuce and love American style. We lost fitting in the same hammock, matching clothes, kisses goodnight. We lost kittis and never knew how a calico goes astray. We gave up our real names, took the collective coups and romped around shouting, I'm a coup and you're one too. Our terrible lies stayed behind. We stopped caring that we were ill-conceived and lost our way back to the train station to wait for parents. We walked away from everything we, uh, we swore was talisman, the Inca head, the stuffed piranha, the glow paint signs from the fly-in, 
We'd lost Gelhundri Fear, where most of our nightmares lost us. Then the Capellan Farm, whose pastures of mist we loved more than almost any of our animals, litters of kittens and rabbits, the fenced-off horses on whose necks we yearned to lean. Thank you. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, Tessa. Oh, um, Davenport. I thought that was a guy's name. Hi, my name's Davin Davenport. But so thank you. I, I, I learned something tonight. Thank you for that. Oh, and the other thing, the last but not least Big Read Committee member, how could I forget Emily Sinclair, who's on our board, of course. Yes. <laughs> and if there is anybody else, I have forgotten you, and we probably should get moving on. So... Um, I would like to take a moment now to um, uh, say a few words about the big read in housekeeping, um, basically as a way of saying so long to housekeeping and Sylvie and Ruthie and Lucille and the dreary town of Fingerbone. And since I am a writer also, um, I wrote this down. So thanks, thanks for that, Nick. I appreciate that. Um, Perhaps because we're close to the end of this long string of dizzying and inspiring events, I find myself asking a question what was all this about again? To answer, I will, re- I will repeat something I'm sure you've heard before. The Big Read is all about building community around a great story and to revitalize the role of literature in American culture. That's the, the sort of the NEA um, stamp that they use. Well, of course, it's those things. That's an easy response to the question, but I think it goes deeper than that. Literature serves many purposes. It entertains us. It helps us pass the time at the dentist or on the bus. Furthermore, good books are often containers of profound beauty and heartbreak, which ironically helps us with the many challenges we face every day. I think that's the real key to what this is all about. From the writer's perspective, Joan Didion once said, We tell ourselves stories in order to live. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. From the reading perspective, the process is similar. However, it's not freezing experience as much as it is confirming it. For example, when I read this passage from Housekeeping, it confirms the wonder and sorrow of my own experience. This is a passage, I think it's on page 116 if you're reading along. Please open your hymnals. It's on page 116. <laughs> Everything that falls upon the eye is apparition, a sheep dropped, a sheet dropped over the world's true workings. The nerves and the brains are tricked, and one is left with dreams that these specters loose their hands from ours and walk away. The curve of the back and the swing of the coat, so familiar as to imply that they should be permanent fixtures of the world, when in fact, nothing is more perishable. Say that my mother was as tall as a man, and that she sometimes set me on her shoulders so that I could splash my hands in the cold leaves above our heads. Say that my grandmother sang in her throat while she sat on her bed and we laced up her big black shoes. Such details were merely accidental. Who could know but us? And since their thoughts were bent upon ghosts, other ghosts than ours, our darknesses than we other darknesses than we had seen, why must we be left 
survivors picking among the flotsam, among the small, unnoticed, unvalued clutter that was all that remained when they vanished, that only catastrophe made noticeable. Darkness is the only solvent. In many ways, such a passage shocks me into recognition. Yes, that's exactly what remembering a lost family family member feels like. I never could find the right words for it, but Marilyn Robinson sure did. Such confirmation of wisdom is so powerful. It polishes a veneer of truth to what we think and how we feel. And perhaps most important, it helps us feel less alone in the world. Ruthie knows that this, what this is like, and I am comforted by her knowing. A book like Housekeeping, therefore, bonds us together, then, as one community, as one crazy compilation of folks who are all living unique and yet eerily similar lives. So, um, that's all I have to say about that. Um, Speaking of community and crazy compilations, um, I'm hoping we're going to finish the night off, the Vagabond Happy Hour, off with style. Um, So please, we're going to do, we have a musical, um, we have a musical show with a sing-along, so, you know, clear your throats, be ready. Um, So please welcome to the stage Tom and Don from Swallow Hill Music. everyone. How's everybody doing? It's great to see everybody. So we're honored to partner with Lighthouse Writers Workshop to honor this uh, great book and the work that they do. Uh, when Mike asked me to, if somebody at Swallow Hill would be interested in uh, participating uh, in in looking at this book and, and adding music to um, uh, certain events, uh, I absolutely said yes. I wasn't thinking necessarily of myself. I'm the CEO of Swallow Hill Music, uh, but I, I, I'm an avid reader. And um, they sent me a book of housekeeping in advance of, of um, thinking about this. And I read that book, and I was completely taken by it. Uh, how many people here have, have read the book? Don't be ashamed of you. Oh, everybody. That's great. Um, that's a t- it was a tough book to read, and I read a lot. It has its own rhythm, and, uh, and it commands you to obey that rhythm, which is frustrating in the beginning, but after a while, it, it has a life of its own, and it's just beautiful. And um, so we're going to do three songs for you. Um, uh, Mike asked us to look at music that tied into the book. Um, so uh, the first one's going to be about loneliness and sadness. Um, the second song is going to be uh, a song that I wrote about the book called Fingerbone. Uh, from Ruthie's uh, perspective. And uh, the third one is going to be a song um, that is actually mentioned numerous times in the book um, that we'd like you to join us and sing along. I know that you'll, uh, you'll recognize the song. So, welcome aboard.
This is Don Mills. Hello, I'm lonely. I sweep up the place. I come in early and I go home late. The one thing I never forget is a face. And you keep me around. You keep me around. Hello, I'm sad. I know I get in the way. You sit and wonder how long I'm gonna stay. When I show you the rainbow in all shades of gray. And you keep me around. You keep me around. You keep me around. You keep me around. Hello, I'm Faith. And I might be blind, but I'm the one that's gonna be towing the line, and you land on your feet almost every time. And you keep me around. You keep me around. You keep me around. You keep me around. in the dark where the light comes from Hello I'm Faith and I might be blind but I'm the one that's gonna be towing the line and you land on your feet almost every time And you keep me around You keep me around You keep me around You keep me around. You keep me around. You keep me the song Finger Bone.
This is the sing-along part. How many of you are singers? We're looking at you. There's a couple of songs that uh, figure prominently into this book, and and the biggest one um, that you um, you read about, and it's also figured prominently in the movie. Did anybody see the '88 movie, um, John Forsyth movie? It was a beautiful movie. Christine Lottie uh, is um, Good Night Irene, and written by Hughie Ledbetter, otherwise known as Leadbelly. Uh, who is a great story of redemption in and of himself. Um, a man who was a friend of Woody Guthrie's, uh, spent some time in prison and, and uh, uh, you know, got out and, um, and resumed his musical career to um, um, great admiration, if not uh, great success. But um, so uh, we'd like you to sing along on the choruses, if you're brave enough, um, sing along on the... Uh, Verses as as well. Uh, what we're going to uh, what I'm going to do is go through the chorus first one time. You're welcome to join in then, but we're going to do it the second time together. And every time it shows up, I believe that the lyrics are right behind me. Thanks to Don again for joining me. Take a little walk downtown. Come on now. Sometimes I live in a town Sometimes I have a great notion To jump into the lake and drown See you in my dreams. 
Rambling, quit your gambling. Quit staying out late at night. Go home to your wife and your family. Stay home by your fireside bride. I'm ring good night. I'm about one more ver- uh, chorus to sing on. So get your pipes ready. You cause me to weep. You cause me to mourn. You cause me to leave my home. But the very last words I heard her say is sing me one more song. Sing it with me. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.